On June 6, 1944, as we all know, more than 6,000 Allied ships carried more than a million soldiers across the English Channel to a 50-mile-wide strip of the Normandy coast in German-occupied France. It was the greatest seaborne assault in human history. The code names given to the beaches where the ships landed have become immortal. Gold, Juno, Sword, Utah, and especially Omaha, where Punky Christian came ashore. Uh, that sea of crosses in the cemetery, sitting atop a bluff at Colville-sur-Mer, overlooking the beaches, recalls to us the cost of those landings. Now, most accounts of this epic story begin with those landings on the morning of June 6th. In fact, however, D-Day was the culmination of months and indeed years of planning and intense debate. Craig Simons now offers the complete story of this Olympian effort. The obstacles to success were many. In addition to presenting the divergent strategic views and cultural frictions, Simons includes vivid portraits of the key decision makers. From Roosevelt and Churchill, George C. Marshall, Dwight Eisenhower, and Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsey, who commanded the naval element of the invasion. Craig Simons is Professor Emeritus at the United States Naval Academy. During a 30-year teaching career at that school, including a four-year term as department chair, he was the first person to win both the Academy's Excellence in Teaching Award and its Excellence in Research Award. He also received the Department of the Navy's Superior Civilian Service Medal on three occasions and was Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, and at the Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth, England. After retirement in 2005, Dr. Simons returned to the Naval Academy for one year, 2011-12, to serve as the class of 1957 Distinguished Professor of American Naval History. He was awarded the Dudley Knox Medal for Lifetime Achievement by the Naval Historical Foundation in 2014. He is the author of, and this is not a misprint, 28 books, including prize-winning biographies of Civil War figures Joseph E. Johnston, Patrick Claiborne, and Franklin Buchanan. His 2005 book, Decision at Sea, Five Naval Battles That Shaped American History, won the Theodore and Franklin D. Roosevelt Prize for Naval History, and his 2008 book, Lincoln and His Admirals, Abraham Lincoln, the U.S. Navy, and the Civil War, won numerous awards, including the 2009 Lincoln Prize. His book on the Battle of Midway was published in 2011, and his most recent book is Neptune, The Allied Invasion of Europe and the D-Day Landings, which won the John Barry Prize from the New York Council of the Navy League. He and his wife, Mary Lou, live in Annapolis, Maryland, and I am delighted and ask you to do the same to warmly welcome Craig Simons to the Virginia Historical Society. Thank you for that very generous introduction, and thank you also for inviting me to be here uh, to participate in the uh, Christian lecture series. Uh, it was a delight for my wife, Mary Lou, and I both to meet uh, the Christian family just a few minutes ago, and uh, doubly honored after that uh, conversation to be here tonight. D-Day. You know, as for most Americans, I suspect perhaps maybe even all Americans, especially over the past decade or so, the references to D-Day conjure up an image of that moment so well portrayed in the opening minutes of Steven Spielberg's film, Saving Private Ryan, when the landing boats crunch up onto the shingle at Omaha Beach, the ramp drops into the surf and those young men, many of them, most of them boys really, scramble out onto that terrible killing ground. It's a searing uh, piece of film, and I think remarkably accurate as well. But where Spielberg begins the story of June 6, 1944, as Paul suggested, is actually the culmination of a much longer story, years of hard work, of careful planning, of logistical preparation and rigorous training. And in acknowledging that, we are reminded that leadership 
does not ex consist simply or perhaps even mostly of taking your position in the front and drawing your sword and calling charge to put yourself in front of your soldiers and attack the enemy. That kind of leadership is certainly needed, especially in war. We are all thankful for the men who took the lead at places like Missionary Ridge, at Bellowood, Iwo Jima. But that kind of leadership that characterized the charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimea or Pickett's charge at Gettysburg or perhaps even Custer at the Little Bighorn, in short, personal heroism and boldness are not always enough. What I want to do this evening is explore a different kind of leadership during the Normandy invasion, the lonely burden of command leadership. Sometimes it's easier to charge the hill than it is to give the order to charge the hill. To explore this phenomenon, I will focus on three men, each of whom faced a different level of command responsibility during the Normandy invasion. Their burdens were complicated, required introspection and quiet deliberation, a willingness to accept the burdens of command decision-making, and often Job-like patience as well. And that, too, is a kind of courage. I'll start with this man, whom we all recognize. Hardly a surprise, I suppose, since he was the overall supreme allied commander for the D-Day operation that involved three major nations and several minor participants and six services. He was 54 years old in 1944, already virtually bald. Dwight David Eisenhower was a Texan by birth, though he was reared in Abilene, Kansas, and always considered that his hometown. Having delayed his application to West Point for two years after he graduated from high school in order to work and earn a little money, he was older than most of his classmates and graduated at the age of 25 in 1915. This gave him, I think, uh, a perspective of sorts on his circumstances, both at West Point and in the years that followed allowed him to observe life maybe a bit more dispassionately than many of his classmates. It was a pattern of behavior that stayed with him into his command responsibility and even into the White House. It was a great disappointment to him that during World War I he never had an opportunity to go overseas, instead spending most of the war in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, training tank units. In the interwar years, Ike's career was marked by a series of increasingly important staff positions under influential commanders. First, Fox Connor, whom he always considered his mentor. Then, perhaps names we know a little better, John J. Pershing. And finally, a fellow named Douglas MacArthur. This was primarily, as I mentioned, staff work rather than command, but it was perfect preparation for his eventual assignment as Supreme Commander at D-Day. His relationship with MacArthur was especially challenging, since MacArthur liked to have yes-men around him, and Eisenhower had to learn how to be loyal to his boss while still remaining his own man. A rather delicate balancing act that turned out to be pretty good preparation for dealing with the likes of Roosevelt and Churchill, as well as with British admirals and generals. Indeed, the key to both Eisenhower's rise in the army and his success during the war years was his measured temperament. In a note for his diary that he wrote in mid-1942, he wrote, in a war such as this, where high command invariably involves a president, a prime minister, six chiefs of staff, and a horde of lesser planners, there has got to be a lot of patience. If anything, that was an understatement. Patience is not a characteristic that many Americans would put near the top of prerequisites for effective military command, but that's exactly where it belongs. Eisenhower's great strengths were his quiet thoughtfulness and his conscientious work habits. He was a deliberate decision maker who maintained careful records and critical in a joint and combined operation where at least six services and three governments are involved, 
he ensured that everyone was kept well informed. Both up and down the chain of command, his willingness to make one more call, write one more note, file one more report, to make sure that everyone knew exactly what was going on and how Ike felt about it. This is a key to success in any undertaking, but absolutely essential in war, especially joint and combined operations in war. Not only that, but throughout it all, despite bureaucratic snafus, logistical failures, and petty squabbles among subordinates, Eisenhower remained determinedly cheerful, encouraging, optimistic. The only visible evidence that he was roiling inside was the ubiquitous cigarette, almost always to be found in his hand, because he smoked up to four packs of unfiltered camels every day. Not that smoking is a prerequisite to leadership. <laughs> Don't go away from this talk saying that Simons told everyone to take up smoking. Drinking works too. No, I, I didn't say that either. Before 1944, Eisenhower's patience and cheerfulness had already been thoroughly tested in North Africa. Upon landing uh, in North Africa in 1942, the Allies hoped that the Vichy French forces there would rally to the Allied cause. But fearful of tipping their hand, they didn't tell the French they were coming. And as a result, when American and British soldiers began landing in the pre-dawn darkness of November 8, 1942, the French quite naturally fought back. Eventually, a series of local ceasefires led to an armistice, but there was still the problem of who would exercise political responsibility, military command among these putative allies. And these circumstances proved a great test to Ike's famous patience and equanimity. The French did eventually come around, of course, but there was a bitter debate among them about which French leader should emerge as commander of the French contingent in this newly patched together alliance. The Allies had counted on this man, who was General Henri Giraud, to rally the French to their side. But once the Anglo-Americans were ashore, Giraud refused to cooperate unless, he said, he was given supreme command over all Allied forces. As always, Eisenhower remained outwardly calm in the face of these demands, though inside he was seething. He kept that anger to himself, though he did unburden himself to George C. Marshall, the U.S. Army Chief of Staff back in Washington, who was a frequent and confident correspondent, writing Marshall, I find myself getting absolutely furious with these stupid frogs and bemoaning the necessity of dealing with little, selfish, conceited worms who call themselves men. <laughs> As an aside, let me note here that if this was an email and the press had gotten a hold of it, Ike probably would have been cashiered with unfortunate and perhaps catastrophic consequences. You might remember that moment just before you push the send button next time. I Eventually, Eisenhower was able to make a deal with another French officer, Admiral Jean-Francois Darlan, granting him authority over French troops in North Africa, though not British and American soldiers, in exchange for his cooperation. Now, in concluding that deal, Ike probably figured that one frog was as good or as bad as another, but the problem was that Darlan had held a rather prominent position in the collaborationist Vichy government, was conceived of as a Nazi collaborator back in America, and the British and American public responded to the news of that appointment with outrage. The whole negotiation and the public reaction to it was annoying, frustrating, even painful for Eisenhower, though again, he almost never let his public face slip, though he seems to have done so here. <laughs> That's Darlan smirking on the left, and Ike seems already to be regretting his decision. 
More broadly, though, Ike's expression perhaps reflects his general frustration with having to deal with the whole political mess. Nevertheless, he knew that as Supreme Allied Commander, politics, at least as much as strategy, was his responsibility. And except for occasional informational notes to Marshall and a few to his wife, Mamie, he never complained about it. It was part of the job. In the end, fate played a hand to resolve this dilemma, for on Christmas Eve of 1942, a French monarchist solved the problem by assassinating Darlan. <laughs> and eventually, of course, he was replaced by that much more congenial fellow, Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> Ike's restraint throughout this entire process, his patience, his cool and correct demeanor despite inward anger, was absolutely crucial. Consider, for example, how George Patton <laughs> might have handled this situation. He would have slapped Giraud, and he would have shot Darlan. <laughs> Ike not only endured it, he emerged with increased stature and the respect of all, including the French. In some ways, for Eisenhower, dealing with the British was almost as difficult as dealing with the French. From the start, it became immediately evident that the British and Americans had strikingly, strikingly different command cultures and organizational habits. The American penchant for getting right to the point, which is something we all share as a national characteristic, ran up against the British tradition of making sure that all the boxes are checked and all the plans are made and everyone is properly in before, informed before moving on to the next thing. Planning was slowed by the British preference for open discussion of most decisions at large staff meetings and committees. American officers found this frustrating and occasionally they made a few disparaging remarks about it within the hearing of the British officers. Eisenhower acted immediately to stop this at once. He lectured his subordinates in no uncertain terms about the need for full cooperation, quoting him, the winning of the war depends markedly upon mutual feelings of respect and confidence. Any friction with the British at any level plays completely into the hands of our enemies, underlining those last seven words for emphasis. He had no tolerance for inter-allied feuding. Teamwork, he knew, was an essential key to success. Being right was not an acceptable alternative to effective cooperation. He didn't mind, he told a subordinate officer on his staff, he didn't mind if one officer called another a son of a bitch. Officers will do that. But if anyone referred to a British son of a bitch, he was fired. Throughout the war, Eisenhower's determination to erase national distinctions within his command was a central element of his leadership. That phrase, by the way, British son of a bitch, perhaps conjures up an image of this man. <laughs> this is Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery, 56 years old in 1944, three years older than Eisenhower, give or take. Montgomery had become famous after his victory in North Africa at El Alamein in 1942, which had won him a knighthood, so he was Sir Bernard. Though his actual accomplishments were more competent than brilliant, his status as a national hero apparently went to his head, for he exuded an ego-driven self-confidence that many, including many British, found embarrassing, even offensive. He once told King George VI, Colin Firth, we all know King George VI, <laughs> in full seriousness that his beret, that beret alone, was worth three divisions because when soldiers saw it across a battlefield, they would cry, there's Monty, and fight harder. <laughs> George Patton, who found fault with many, of course, thought him a little fellow of less than average ability who thinks he's Napoleon. 
Even Eisenhower, who got along with everyone, found Montgomery a strain. In some respects, Montgomery was the Douglas MacArthur of the European War, a man with evident military talents who was victimized by his own unbridled ego, his haughty demeanor, and a tendency to preen. Having worked under MacArthur, though, Ike once again used his diplomatic skills and that famous patience, much needed in dealing with the man most men called Monty. And Monty did not make that easy. He was openly dismissive of Americans in general, believing that they exhibited more boisterous enthusiasm than good sense, and he thought they had made a dog's breakfast, his phrase, of the whole campaign in Italy. His body language, as well as his occasional off-the-cuff remark, made it clear he did not think much of Ike either, dismissive of the American determination to have overwhelming superiority of materiel at the point of contact, a tendency which Russell Wigley has labeled the American way of war, was silly. Because after all, he said, it is the man that counts and not the machine. What he meant was that winning battles was due as much to individual courage as to technological or mechanical superiority, but few who heard him were in any doubt about who he thought the man was. Despite all that, Ike managed to work with Montgomery too. As an example of how far he was willing to go to do so, at one of their earliest staff meetings, Ike absentmindedly lit up a cigarette. Of course. And Montgomery, who did not tolerate either drinking or smoking, looked up angrily and asked, who's smoking? Without a word, Ike snubbed out his cigarette, and he never again lit one in Montgomery's presence. He didn't complain. He didn't pull rank. He just sucked it up. Patience, then, was a central and even indispensable element of Eisenhower's success as commander his willingness to tolerate the bloviations of men like Giraud, Darlan, and Montgomery, also demonstrated that he could subordinate his ego to the greater good. He might have complained about it to Churchill, for example, or to FDR. He might have demanded that Montgomery be replaced. But it would have damaged Anglo-American relations and very likely delayed, if not entirely, derail the invasion. So he grinned his famous grin and put up with it, and insisted that everyone else should do the same. And what a grin he had. Admiral Morton Deo, the American naval officer who commanded the battleship bombardment group off Omaha Beach on D-Day, thought Ike's smile was worth 20 divisions. That makes it worth about 17 more divisions than Monty's beret, by the way. <laughs> Dale's remark was a metaphor, of course, unlike Monty's. But that grin was indeed worth something. It diffused arguments. It soothed subordinates. It pacified leaders. Here, for example, in this great photo is Ike with Churchill in 1943. Churchill was fond of making humorous quips, and he liked an appreciative audience. And Eisenhower was always careful to provide one. And as a result, Churchill, like everybody else, liked Ike. On the very eve of the landings, Eisenhower had to face one more decision. Even as the warships and landing craft put to sea, the weather in the channel worsened to the point where there were four-foot seas and 30-mile-an-hour winds. The staff meteorologist, Major James M. Stagg, Royal Air Force, came in with a forecast that the weather on June 5th, the initial date scheduled for the landing, would be ferocious. Ike postponed the landings for a day. But he could not really do so again because of the shifting tide schedule. The next day, Stagg reported the wind would remain fresh, his phrase, on June 6th, and it was evident that the crossing would be uncomfortable, again Stagg's phrase, but that it would improve throughout the day and indeed for the next several days. Upon hearing that, Eisenhower got up from his chair and began pacing back and forth. Now, in the room are all the members of the combined chiefs of staff, the head of the Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy, the United States Navy, the American First Army. 
Eisenhower walked back and forth and nobody said a word. Everyone understood this was his decision to make and his alone. His next words would decide the fate of thousands, quite possibly change the course of history. Okay, he said, we'll go. While Ike was willing to mollify presidents, prime ministers, even foppish generals, he knew in the end that the final responsibility of command belonged to him, and he did not try to pass the buck to his subordinates. He did not ask them to vote. He did not ask them to participate. He was in command. He made the call and accepted full responsibility for it. On the 4th and 5th of June of 1944, the massive armada that the Allies had assembled, put to sea. It was off Omaha Beach where the contest was the fiercest, where Sergeant Christian stepped ashore on D-Day plus three, and where the issue remained in doubt for most of the morning. This naval force that appeared off Omaha Beach was commanded by this man, Rear Admiral John Leslie Hall, Jr., now, Hall's singular characteristic, both as a personality and as a naval officer, was a hearty self-confidence. In his Naval Academy yearbook page, Hall's classmates described him as a big, blonde, good-natured Virginian with a deep bass voice who was a friend to everyone. And I didn't just pick him because we're in Virginia. That's <laughs> Like Eisenhower, Hall was older than most of his classmates at the Naval Academy, because prior to going there, he had spent three years at William and Mary College, where his father was an English professor, and whose translation of Beowulf is still in print, by the way. You can look it up. Hall at William and Mary was a standout athlete. He starred in football, basketball, and baseball, lettered in all three for three years. Now, this is before the NCAA rules would have limited his participation in intercollegiate athletics subsequently. So when he got to the Naval Academy, he played all three of those sports for four more years. And upon his graduation in 1913, he was awarded the sword presented to the Academy's best all-round athlete. His size, his age, his athletic prowess all contributed to that ebullient self-confidence. Now, it can be a fine line between Montgomery's preening sense of superiority and Hall's open and evident self-confidence. One is self-centered and undercuts group morale. The other is encouraging and invites others to share in a positive expectation of success. And that's what Hall had. Of course, he could be blunt and assertive, even to senior officers. In one example of that, one day he went to Montgomery's headquarters to tell him that a shortage of shipping a problem throughout the entire period of D-Day planning, might require a reduction in the size of the initial landing force. Well, Monty didn't happen to be at his headquarters that day, so Hall spoke to the Monty's chief of staff, who told him dismissively that General Montgomery will not accept a reduction of that nature. Hall told the general he hadn't come there to get Montgomery's approval. It's not a matter of what General Montgomery will accept. I'm here to provide the general with information about what he can do. On D-Day, Hall, as I mentioned, commanded the landing ships off Omaha Beach from his flagship, the USS Ancon. On board that ship were several of the generals whose men were already on the beach and dying there. The first of the landing boats touched ground at 6.40 a.m. on June 6th, and by 8, it was evident that they were making no progress at all. The beach at Omaha was simply a mess. The men who had landed were pinned down and unable to move. The landing craft bringing in the follow-on assault waves ashore were hitting mines or being shelled, and in any case had great difficulty finding an open piece of beach that wasn't clogged with debris, wreckage, broached and sunken boats, burning tanks and vehicles, and dead or dying men. The soldiers who had landed and those sailors forced to join them when their ships were shot up or wrecked 
at least those of them who were still alive, sheltered precariously behind a low ridge, maybe eight inches high, a hundred yards up from the surf line. There they pressed their faces into the sand as they sought to avoid machine gun bullets passing only inches over their heads. And all the while, the rising tide mounted the beach faster than the wounded men could crawl, reducing slowly but inexorably the narrow strip of land where men could still live. At 8.30, the beachmaster on Omaha Beach signaled Hall that he should stop sending any more men or equipment ashore. Only two hours after it had started, less than two hours, the invasion of Omaha Beach had stalled. On Hall's flagship, the generals were horrified as well as frustrated. According to protocol, then and now, the senior Navy officer remains in command of an amphibious operation until the beach is secured, at which point the Army commander assumes responsibility. Thus, the generals on Hall's command ship were essentially high-ranking passengers. But those were their men dying on the beach, and they wanted to do something. General Leonard T. Garreau, commander of the Fifth Corps, went up onto the bridge of the Ancon and confronted Hall. Wasn't there something more that could be done, Garreau asked. Hall, who, as we all know, felt no qualms whatsoever in lecturing generals, um, explained that the attack was still developing, and even if it had temporarily stalled, the way to fix it was simply to continue with the landings. He assured Garrow that all was going to work out. Eventual victory was only a matter of time. Garrow felt he could not wait and do nothing, and he decided to commit the 115th Combat Infantry Team ahead of schedule. And while that contributed to the growing American power ashore, it also added to the confusion and congestion on the beach. The next general to go up to the bridge to see Hall was Clarence Hubner, the strict no-nonsense commander of the 1st Division, known as the Big Red One. Here we see all three of them labeled on the slide. By 8.30, Hubner had concluded that the situation was dire, and he expressed his concern about the situation on Omaha Beach, hinting that he might have to order a withdrawal. Once again, Hall adopted a patient, confident demeanor. He reminded the generals that until they established their headquarters ashore, they didn't have the authority to consider, much less to order, a withdrawal. Only the naval commander could do that, and Hall had no intention of doing so. He told Hubner in no uncertain terms, I'm in command, and I'm not worried. It seems appropriate, perhaps, to insert here um, the opening lines of Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. I don't know how many of you were compelled to memorize this in elementary school. Not much memorization goes on, I'm afraid, anymore in elementary school. But it opens this way. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, then yours is the earth and everything that's in it. Now, Kipling notwithstanding, in assessing this moment in history, this moment that we see here, we need to acknowledge that the boundary between being cool under pressure and being stubborn, like the boundary between arrogance and confidence, is a vague one. If in the end the soldiers had failed to secure Omaha Beach, we would now be looking back on Hall as a kind of latter-day Ambrose Burnside, the Civil War general who stubbornly ordered his men to make repeated and vain attacks on the high ground behind Fredericksburg in the Civil War. But in this case, Hall was right. By 11 o'clock, the pressure on the German defenders created by putting more and more Allied soldiers ashore, plus timely naval gunfire support from a half dozen American and British destroyers, allowed the invaders to fight their way off the beach and onto the high ground behind it. Was it just stubbornness 
that made Hall insist that the Allies stick with the original plan, or was it his ability, acquired by a lifetime of self-confidence, to see that unexpected problems almost always arise, not only in battle, but in life too, and knowing when those circumstances require a dramatic reassessment, and when cool steadfastness is instead the best solution, is often the difference between success and failure, even, as in this case, between life and death. I'll now leave the august ranks of admirals and generals to the level of the lowly lieutenant. I say lowly because I was one once. Because the person I want to talk about next is this guy. This is Navy Lieutenant Dean Rockwell. Rockwell was a high school mathematics teacher and part-time football coach who joined the Navy as a volunteer after Pearl Harbor. His job on D-Day was to ferry ashore what were called duplex drive tanks, DD tanks, short. Rather curious looking vehicles, and I'll show you one in a minute. They're essentially M4 Sherman tanks equipped with what amounted to water wings, giant inflatable canvas shrouds that were designed to let the tanks swim ashore under their own power so that when the shroud was deployed, they looked like this. They were virtually, the tanks themselves, as you can see here, were suspended underwater. Only about eight inches of freeboard of that inflatable life jacket showed above the waterline, so they were kind of a stealth weapon. They could get ashore unseen, come ashore with the infantry. Because these curious vessels, do we call them, uh, couldn't move very fast, only about three knots, they were launched early, about 3 o'clock in the morning, to give them time to motor to the beach at that pen painstaking three knots. The problem, of course, was the weather. The inflatable canvas shrouds with their 9-inch freeboard seemed unlikely to survive very long in four-foot waves. The operational orders that were issued to the uh, landing craft commanders as well as the tank commanders specified that the decision as to whether or not to launch those tanks at 3 a.m. on D-Day were with the local commanders, in this case with Lieutenant Math Teacher Dean Rockwell. I always think of Tom Hanks' portrayal of Captain Miller, who, as we found out in the movie, was a high school English teacher. So English teachers and math teachers, how very American it is that they were at the point of the spear on June 6th. Rockwell led his 16 small tank carriers, each of them carrying five of these tanks. Here's an image in rather calmer water. This is not a D-Day image. This is a practice image. But you can see how they were arrayed in the well deck of these tank carriers. So Rockwell had 16 of these vessels under his command, each of them with five DD tanks on board. Uh, and he took up his positions on time and in the right spot uh, and deployed them in a line abreast facing the beach, ready to go. But as he looked around him, he could see that launching these tanks into that sea would be tantamount to murder. And so he decided instead to carry them all the way into the beach in spite of the damage and the danger of German artillery. He tried to communicate that decision to the other vessels in his flotilla, but in the dark and operating, remember, under radio silence, that proved hard to do, and not all of the LCT skippers got the word. The eight vessels that were under Rockwell's immediate command all got the word, but the other eight to his starboard side did not. And on those vessels, you can imagine the conversations that took place between the young and largely inexperienced Army and Navy officers, men in their early 20s, 22, 23, as Sergeant Christian was on D-Day plus three, grappling with the distinction between sacred duty and good judgment. To most of them, the seas looked too rough to launch the tanks, but the young tank commanders wanted to go. They had been rehearsing this for six months. This was the defining moment of their young lives, and they wanted to go. And most of them did. One after another, 
35 of the heavy tanks were launched into that volatile sea, and all but two of them went straight to the bottom. A few struggled forward for a few hundred yards, then they too began to sink. As a horrified crewman on one of the LCTs recalled later, they just went to the bottom like rocks. Here was a case where earnest young men all desperately sought to do the right thing, to do their duty. Torn by determination and obedience in one direction and common sense and compassion in another, half of them, thanks largely to Rockwell, chose common sense and took the tanks all the way to the beach. Half chose duty and commitment and sent the tanks sadly and horribly to their doom. What would Eisenhower have done, the deliberate, thoughtful consensus builder? What would Hall have done, the bluff, self-confident commander who stuck with the planned program? Here are the three of our decision makers. Are there any lessons we might be able to extrapolate from their experience on D-Day about leadership? I already mentioned that Eisenhower's greatest asset was his temperament. That included an almost saintly patience, as well as tolerance for other views and other ways of doing things. He was careful never to dismiss alternate views out of hand, even when they came from a source he considered dubious. His persistent good cheer, even when provoked, his discretion and restraint in dealing with difficult superiors like Churchill, querulous allies like Giraud, and annoying subordinates like Montgomery, even truculent friends like George Patton helped him keep the coalition together. Ike also combined two elements that are sometimes at odds with one another, deliberation and decisiveness. On June 5th, and considering all the factors of weather, the morale of the soldiers, the expectations of the public, as well as the skepticism of the Russians, who had been waiting for this for two and a half years, and the readiness of the Germans, Ike had to balance a lot of issues against one another. In the end, however, the decision was his alone, and he knew a hard decision was necessary. Okay, he said, we'll go. Jimmy Hall also faced his moment of deliberation and decisiveness off Omaha Beach. To those who witnessed it, like Captain Lorenzo Sabin, who was also on the bridge, it seemed that, and these are Sabin's words, everyone except Admiral Hall seemed to be tense, worried, and disturbed. Very likely, Hall was too. But as he had no better alternative than to press on, he was the personification of coolness under pressure. This is a tricky balance. As I noted earlier, the line between cockiness and steadfastness, steadfastness is a knife edge. You have to get this one right, and Hall did. In his case, keeping on, keeping on was the right answer. Not so for Dean Rockwell. He too faced that moment of decision off Omaha Beach, several miles closer to the shore. His orders called for him to launch the tanks, and the men in the tanks wanted to go. But Rockwell said no. The sea was too rough. And as the horrible catastrophe that befell the tank drivers and the other squadron proved. It is interesting, though not necessarily significant, that both Hall and Rockwell had also been successful, even dominant, athletes. Not that being athletic aids in your decision-making, but it may be that self-confidence does. And perhaps their athletic success, which won them deference and adulation in their younger lives, enabled them to develop the kind of self-confidence that Hall in, uh, demonstrated when he stood down three three-star generals on the bridge of his flagship and allowed Rockwell to overrule the earnest entreaties of the tank drivers on the LCTs. Sometimes it takes great courage to stay with the program. Sometimes it takes great courage to abandon the plan and find a better one. And both of these are a kind of leadership. Thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to your questions. There you are.
I'm told we have about 15 minutes or so. There are microphones in each aisle. If you'll indicate to someone with a microphone, they'll bring it to you. Here's one. Yes, sir. Marvelous uh, personal qualities you alluded to. Uh, at the strategic level, uh, the American army was, was taking Rome at about the same time, and the Russians shortly thereafter launched an Eastern Front offensive. Were all of those at the top level strategically coordinated? That's a great question. Actually, the last two were. The taking of Rome turned out to be largely coincidental. Uh, in fact, the soldiers who took Rome were a little disappointed that they didn't get any headlines as a result of it because all the headlines were about what happened on Normandy. Um, but the uh, Russian offensive was. The original strategic plan was a pincer movement, in effect, uh, an invasion of the French coastline uh, and a near simultaneous uh, offensive by the Russians on the Eastern Front. Uh, the landings were on June 6th. The Russian offensive was on June 22nd. Probably two reasons for this, and you can probably decide on your own which was more instrumental. One is that Stalin had been promised at least three times that the Allies were going to open a second front, and it hadn't happened. So one explanation, he's kind of waiting around to make sure they really, really, really were going to do it this time. But the other, and I think probably more important reason for the delay before the Russian offensive is that June 22nd was the two-year anniversary of Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union, June 22nd, 1941. So, so now he's sort of turning that over and attacking in the other direction. Um, I, I will also point out, uh, relative to the, the two pincer drives, that the Allies put five divisions ashore in the landings on the five beaches. And now that was later expanded uh, into more divisions, but when the Russians counterattacked on June 22nd, they did so with 284 divisions. So the Russians were still bearing uh, the brunt of the fighting on the ground until probably into 1945. But yes, they were coordinated. Who's next? Yes, sir. As an epilogue, we all know what happened to Eisenhower, but could you provide what happened after the war to Hall and Rockwell? I sure can. Uh, Hall stayed in the Navy, retired as a two-star. He went to the Pacific very briefly, as most officers did after the landing, uh, was promoted to a two-star and retired and lived to a comfortable old age. Uh, Dean Rockwell got out of the Navy and went back to teaching mathematics in high school. Got to be more. Here's one in the middle. I have two questions, but the oh, first, good. first one, who ordered the destroyers to come closer and start shooting? Was that Hall or was it the destroyers themselves? Actually, it, it was a kind of a combination of things. I, I could have spent more time, and I do like talking about this particular episode, so I thank you for the question uh, about the destroyers. Uh, go ahead and sit down while I answer this. Then you can, you, You'll have another question coming up, but I don't want to worry. It's going to be a long answer. Um, <laughs> The original plan for the destroyers was that they would operate outside this massive amphibious armada uh, to screen those ships from interference by German U-boats in particular and what were called E-boats or S-boats, essentially PT boats attacking from Cherbourg and elsewhere. But when the uh, troops got bogged down in Omaha Beach, the word went out immediately that, that we need help and it went to all the ships offshore and there are a number of people uh, who take credit for it. Life magazine made one of them famous uh, Admiral Deo, uh, supposedly on the bridge of his ship, announced, uh, they're playing hell with our boys on the beach, and we can't have that. Get in there, you, you fellows. And sent that out by uh, uh, an uncoded, plain English message to all the destroyers. And that seems to have been the trigger. But there were others as well. And I think perhaps even more important, there were a number of destroyers that had already recognized the circumstances and had begun moving in toward the beach on their own without orders. And there's a lot in that particular sequence of events uh, about American decision making at a crisis moment. We don't have to wait for orders if we see a problem. And those, uh, there were about 12 destroyers altogether. They got so close to the beach, less than 800 yards in some cases, that their uh, bows were actually resting on the sand. They were so close they were being hit by rifle bullets uh, from the bluffs behind the beach. But being there allowed them to provide close in and, and, and precision-targeted uh, naval gunfire support to the troops on the beach and were 
heavily instrumental in allowing the troops to fight their way off of Omaha Beach and gain the high ground. You had a second question. Yes, sir. I was amazed to find out in your book that you, the LSTs, which I think are about 300 feet long. 309, were, to be precise. Yes, sir. Uh, were manufactured on the Ohio River. Yes. How yes. do they get through the locks that on exist? The, oh, very good. They were manufactured on the Ohio River, uh, on the Seneca, uh, Seneca River, Illinois River, um, and upstream on the Mississippi north of Cairo at several uh, sites. Uh, the locks at the time were not a problem. Remember, an empty LST doesn't carry uh, a lot of material, and, and they could get through in relatively shallow water. So they, could, they didn't necessarily need to use the locks that are not in some of which are not long enough to accommodate a 309-foot ocean-going vessel. But one of the reasons for that, of course, is that uh, the shipyards along the coast were being used for the construction of Liberty ships and destroyers and every other kind of ocean-going ship, so that the LSTs were mostly built inland. Uh, the last surviving operational LST now is at Evansville, Illinois, where it was built. Uh, they built, I think, 144 LSTs at Evansville, and one of them I love to tell this story, is still there. Uh, its particular story, it was at Omaha Beach on D-Day, landed its troops, made 50 round trips then, back and forth across the channel, carrying supplies and equipment in, prisoners of war and wounded out, and uh, continued to serve in the United States Navy for another half dozen years after the war, and then was sold to the Greek Navy. <laughs> and the Greeks used it for about 15 years, and then they were ready to retire it and sell it for scrap. And the news reached the ears of their, the original crew on LST-235, and they said, well, we can't have that. So they took up a collection, and they bought it. <laughs> and now the story gets great, because these guys, who are now all in their mid to upper 70s, flew to Athens and steamed it back. took it up the Mississippi River and all the way back to Evansville, where it still is today. The guy who gave me my tour of that ship, Otto Beminger, is one of the tour guides. And if you get a chance to go there, make sure you get him. He was on the LST-235 on June 6, 1944, at Omaha Beach, and still giving tours of his ship. Anyway. I have an observation first and then a question. Um, I observed that Eisenhower <coughs> did not have many ribbons, and he didn't have the scrambled eggs as Paul has. He was very low-key in that regard. Also, the question is, the three gentlemen up there have <coughs> different um, styles of leadership. What do the academies teach now if, as far as command uh, leadership to uh, uh, answer questions that arise that may not arise in school? Well, I am not a fan. Uh, as a, I'm an historian. Let me begin this response by saying that I'm an historian. And I believe that the lessons of leadership are embedded in history. And the best way to understand what works and what doesn't work and what responsibilities individuals at moments of crisis might have to shoulder comes from understanding and knowledge of history. But I may be prejudiced in making that statement. Uh, there are leadership classes at the Naval Academy. Uh, I never taught one. I taught history classes. Um, I'm a skeptic of those uh, books which say, here are the seven habits of highly effective people, or the ten secrets to becoming a successful investor, or the five whatever. I don't think you can make a list. I think you have to live. You have to have experience and try things. And that's one reason why at the Naval Academy, Plebes come in and are absolute scum. They learn to be worms to begin with, and then gradually are endowed with increased responsibility so that by the time they are what we call firsties, that is seniors, they have stripes on their sleeves or on their collars, and they exercise responsibility. They're either a platoon commander, or a squad commander, or a platoon commander, or a company commander, or a brigade commander, or a regimental commander, or they are the regimental logistics officer, or the brigade uh, movement officer, or what. They all have a job. And they learn to exercise that job. And they have to give orders to their peers and deal with their subordinates. They have to file the paperwork in triplicate and do all that other nonsense that you have to do in the military forces today. And I think that, probably as much as any class, helps them internalize 
the characteristics and responsibilities of leadership. And of course, when they graduate from the Naval Academy, they're not done with learning about leadership. They all go to a service school, whether that's pilot training or ground infantry for the Marine Corps or surface warfare officer school or pilot training or whatever it might be. So I, I think there's a lot that gets done, but my answer is read history. Who did the coordination with the Air Force, the landing? The coordination with the Air was Eisenhower's responsibility as well. His staff officer had perhaps the most wonderful British name uh, in history, Sir Stafford Lee Mallory, hyphenated. Uh, but his friends called him LM. Um, and he was the air commander. And, and there was an air commander, a ground commander, and a, a naval commander. And they were all Brits. Eisenhower was the overall commander, an American, but he had his three subordinates were all Brits. And the air commander was Lee Mallory. And uh, Lee Mallory, just as an example of how Eisenhower had to maintain control over this, came to uh, Eisenhower on June 4th and said, you know, we've got to cancel the airdrops. It's going to be too costly. We can't do this. It's just, I've, I've been looking at the maps and looking at the numbers. We'll lose too many men. We just, we, I cannot in good conscience do this. And Eisenhower said, well, explain to me why this is. And he, they went through this and talked it through. And Eisenhower nodded and listened carefully and said, well, yes, I appreciate everything you say. And I'm sure you're absolutely right, but we're going to go ahead anyway. <laughs> so he had to make that call, too. It was just too late to change it up. Uh, and, of course, Lee Mallory was right in that the losses among the airborne, and particularly the glider troops, were appalling. Uh, but the landing behind the German lines, nevertheless, was significant also in breaking up German communications and attempts to reinforce the beach. So it was valuable as well. Um, but in addition to Eisenhower and then these three subordinate commanders, there are literally thousands of staff officers, mostly lieutenants and commanders who are doing all the scut work as to which planes will fly, which track, how much fuel they will carry, what their bomb load will be. And all of that coordination had to be done by staffs based on the orders given them by their superiors. But in the end, the superiors, in this case Eisenhower, had to make the call about whether they would go ahead or not. required for an operation of this magnitude? Logistics, logistics, logistics. Uh, it's the same team. It's the staff officers and the uh, Shafe headquarters who put that all together. And in the logistic planning, the real roadblock was shipping. There just wasn't enough. We all talk about, Paul mentioned in his introduction, we all talk about the 6,000 ships. That's a bit of an exaggeration because that includes the small landing craft. But even, even if you just take, who are, which are technically boats rather than ships, but but 6,000 vessels, the largest assembly of floating armament ever created in the history of the planet, and let's hope the largest ever. Um, it seems like there was so much that a shortage of shipping seems impossible to think about, and yet that was the problem. And it was the LST in particular that was the problem. So in coordinating the logistics, it's not just how many troops to how many ships to what jeeps on this one and tanks on that one and supplies on this one and how long for the unload and all of that detailed staff work that has to get. It goes all the way up to the very top where the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Ernest King and George C. Marshall had to figure out what gets priority. Are we going to build LSTs to carry the men across the channel or are we going to build Liberty ships to get the supplies to England, which the men will need to cross the channel, or are we going to build destroyer escorts, which will guard the transports going across the ocean from the German submarines so that they can get it? And all of, you can't do all of it. One of the great luxuries the United States has always had in wars as well as in peace is that we always have, have always had, a surplus of everything. Our gross domestic product when, the, when we entered the war in 1941, was greater than that of Germany and Japan and Italy and Britain and France and Russia combined. We were rich. In fact, we would come up with numbers. We would say, well, we're going to build 16 million tons of shipping this year. And the British would burst out laughing. That's, not, that's just not possible. The British answer when, when they have debates about how are we going to handle this, if we don't have enough ships to conduct this landing, the British 
response was, well, we'll have to postpone it. The American answer was, no, no, we'll just build more ships because we can. Uh, but even with that, uh, Eisenhower had to go ashore with no margin for error whatsoever in the number of landing craft he had available. We had just enough, and at Omaha Beach in particular, it was obvious that we had just enough. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it.